reading from Matthew 12, 1 through 8. At this time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Please pray with me. Thank you, O Lord, for this day, for a day of worship and of praise. Thank you for the freedom to be able to praise you freely, God, and without any persecution from that. Thank you for a day to gather with fellow believers in community and fellowship. I pray over Jayton as he brings us your word. I pray that our hearts and minds are open to receive you and to learn from you. And I pray that we are living this day for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wow. I grew up Baptist, and so I've heard how wonderful, how marvelous many times, but I don't know if I've ever heard it just proclaimed like that. So first of all, church, well done. Wow, thank you for that. That was beautiful. Um, second of all, good morning. Good to see you all today. See you not so bright and early as the 8.30 service, but still bright enough and early enough that it's still very good to see you. I think most of you know me, um, but for, for those of you who don't, my name is Jayton. Um, I get the great honor of being your youth pastor here at Fellowship Church. Thank you to the, the three youth who love me. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> I know, but I, it's an honor to serve your students and to serve your teenagers and some of your preteens. Uh, but it, it's, man, it's the job of a lifetime, let me tell you. Um, we, I've been here for about nine months, and, uh, if, but if you asked any of our students or leaders or maybe my lovely wife, Amy, it feels like we've been here a lot longer. This church just feels like home to us. Uh, it feels like we've been here much, much longer than nine months, but what a nine months it's been. Um, we love it here. I'm really, really glad that God called us here. Um, but today is also special because I have another great honor of getting to preach to you today. I don't know if you noticed, but I'm not Chris Smith. I'm wearing shoes. Um, I'm not very tall. Chris could probably throw me across the building. All, all these great differences that make us a good team. Um, but I, I'm excited to preach to you today. I'm, I was so excited. In fact, I woke up today at 3.45 a.m. and just stared at the ceiling and said, all right, Lord, I guess we're awake now. Uh, at 4.30, I rolled over to my wife, Amy, who's sitting here, and I, I said, honey, I can't sleep, um, which I don't know why I wanted to torture her. She's pregnant. She's growing a baby boy right now, and, and we're, we're sleeping on borrowed time. Eventually, at 4.30, a baby's going to be waking her up. I need to be just letting her sleep as much as she can. But I was excited to preach, and that sounds ironic. It's, it's a little ironic I say that, uh, because, oh boy, <laughs> today's a fun one. Uh, I'll just tell you right out the gates, today we're going to be talking about the unforgivable sin. Fun, right? 
You guys, you look excited. You're like, oh, good. Yay. That's what everybody expects, you know, when, when they hear, hey, the youth pastor's preaching today. They're like, oh, good, something fun, lighthearted, like blasphemy, you know, the one thing that you can do that will, God will never forgive. Easy things just like that, right? Super easy stuff. Um, but no, it's true. When Chris reached out to me and he, he asked me, and he also asked Chad, he asked Chad, who will be preaching next week, to cover, him for, cover for him while he's on vacation, visiting his daughter, spending some time, getting some well-deserved rest. When he asked me and Chad if we would preach, I immediately went to the document that has like, okay, where are we going to be in Matthew? And I got to see where Chad's going to get to preach out of. It's Matthew 13, and it's the parable of the sower. Go Chad. <laughs> like that's, I, I read that and I was like, really? <laughs> okay, I, I'd love to do that. I love the parable of the sower. I taught on it last week to the students. It's this amazing parable that Jesus actually explains to us. Chad's not even going to have to preach. He just has to read. Jesus is going to preach to you. It's going to be great. I'm happy for Chad because then I looked at what I had to preach on and I saw the words blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I was like, I now understand how those deer feel in the headlights. My brain shut off for a second. But church, in all truth, this is an incredibly, incredibly important subject. This is something that we must understand that the, this truth that there is this sin that people can commit that won't be forgiven. That as Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 31, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Church, we as Christians... We as missionaries in our homes and in our communities and in the world, we have got to understand that this sin exists. That if we want to follow the perfect law of God, that we have got to understand what this sin is. We have to understand it because if it is so heinous, if it is so atrocious to God that it would be considered unforgivable to him, to the one who wrote the book on forgiveness, then we have to understand it. It's that big of a deal to God. It has got to be that big of a deal to us. So as we dive into scripture, church, as we seek to understand this, I want to ask that you would pray with me. Let's pray. Father God, I, I, I pray right now, Lord, for understanding. Lord, that as we dive into your word, as we see these moments in scripture, Lord, that, that lead to this lesson that your son wanted us to absolutely understand, Father, that we would have eyes ready to see, that we would have ears that are ready to listen. God, open up our minds and our hearts, God, and I, I pray, God, right now that you would move me out of the way. Just speak through me, Lord. Just let every word I say be all yours. Thank you for loving us, God. Thank you, God, for the forgiveness we do have. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, in order to unpack and understand this sin, we need to understand why Jesus taught it in the first place. Because this wasn't something that Jesus just taught out of the blue. This wasn't something he said on the Sermon on the Mount where he had a huge crowd gathered and he, he had planned it, he had prepped it. He said, I'm going to talk to them about this today. This isn't something where he was in secret with his disciples and being like, hey, like, hey, there's an unforgivable sin, just, just so you know. That wasn't what was going on today. This wasn't... Something that happened, something very specific happens here that pushes Jesus to proclaim this. 
to proclaim what we just read in verse 31, that there is a sin that leads to no forgiveness. And we see that in this chapter of Matthew that we're in today, in Matthew chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you, turn there, turn to Matthew chapter 12. We are spending all day in Matthew chapter 12 today. We'll only turn away from it once. And I love this chapter. I love this chapter because here, this author of the gospel, Matthew, begins to explain this sequence of events. These things that happen, this a little bit of background that leads to Jesus saying, do not do this. The sequence of events that leads to him warning the Pharisees, hey, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, that won't be forgiven. Many parents and, and students out there will, will understand this phrase, the, the phrase, a come to Jesus moment. Jesus literally has with the Pharisees a, hey, come to me moment. Let's talk for a minute. We're going to talk about this. And sadly, what leads to this moment is them treading very closely or directly into this unforgivable sin. As I'm sure many of you know, the Pharisees were not fans of Jesus at all. And we read all throughout the Gospels that they're always at odds with him. They're not fans. They, they, in fact, they hate him. They hate Jesus. And much of that stemmed from the fact that Jesus challenged them. Jesus challenged their authority. Jesus challenged their seats of power. Many of their own man-made laws that the Pharisees enforced on people, Jesus was like, that's bogus. No, that, that, that's not it. Now, this isn't to say that Jesus went against God's law. That's not it at all. Jesus never sinned. Jesus himself in Matthew 5 tells us like he did not come to abolish the law. He didn't come to make it inert. In fact, he came to fulfill it. He came to make it whole. Jesus never broke God's law. So the Pharisees' issue with him was not that he was breaking the law. It was that he was calling the Pharisees out on their own selfish desires, on these man-made unfair practices that they were forcing on the people. And this is perhaps most relevant, most, most true when it came to the Sabbath. Because church, God's law tells us that we are to recognize the Sabbath, that we are to keep it holy. That as God took a day of rest, and we're called to it too. If it's good enough for God, it is good enough for us. And even the Ten Commandments tell us, keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. It's this day where we put aside the busyness of our lives where we slow down and we seek God and we seek his holiness and we rest. And the Pharisees had taken this day, they had taken this law, they had taken this command and tacked on these heavy and unnecessary burdens to it. For example, you, they probably, things like, well, hey, if you break a sweat on the Sabbath, sin. Straight to jail. Not literally, but you know what I mean. If you exert energy, if you, if you work at all, if you exert energy, sin. You sinned. Tomorrow's the Sabbath. You better prepare your food today. Because tomorrow, if you work and you prepare your food on the Sabbath, sin. You're sinning. It was these unnecessary, these things that they were like, well, we don't, we have to be so sure and we're going to make sure all the people follow this law. And if we catch any of them doing something, these Pharisees had the role, the authority to call people out to punish them for it. And what we see here at the beginning of Matthew 12 is Matthew detailing these two instances where the Pharisees and, and Jesus come together and they're at odds with each other over the Sabbath. Which leads to this issue of this horrible sin that we will read about later. 
Natalie did a great job reading the first eight verses of chapter 12 where, where we get to read about Jesus and his disciples walking through these fields of grain and they're, they're taking the heads of the grain and they're eating it because they're hungry. And the Pharisees see this. This is happening on the Sabbath and they see this and they go to Jesus and they're like, hey, you need to get your boys. Like, what, what are they doing? Well, like, do you see what they're doing right now? They're breaking the law on the Sabbath. Look at what Jesus says. Look at what Jesus says in response in verses 3 through 8 in chapter 12. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it, which, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And again, in the next few verses, through verses 9 uh, through 14, we, we see again Jesus, he's in the synagogue. Jesus is in the synagogue and he's teaching. And the Pharisees bring him this man with a withered hand. And this kind of makes me mad because these Pharisees know what Jesus is about. They, they know that he's sympathetic. They know that he loves broken people, that he heals people, that he will go out of his way to take care of people who need it. And so they know it's the Sabbath. They know like all these laws that there is. Sorry, excuse me, I'm getting worked up. That there is. And they bring him this man with a withered hand to test Jesus. Scripture tells us it is to test him, to try to get him arrested, to try to get him to break the law. And they bring him this broken man almost as a show, and they ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? To test him. And look at how Jesus responds in verses 11 through 14. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Do you see the issue here? Do you see why the Pharisees were so angry? Jesus was going after their golden calf. Jesus was challenging this misplaced sense of power and abuse that these Pharisees were desperately clinging on to. For them, the Sabbath had kind of become this once-a-week opportunity to go out and enforce this terrible weight, enforce these terrible expectations on the people. For the Pharisees, their message was, hey, you were made to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is tomorrow. Get ready to make some sacrifices. And then Jesus comes in and he says, no. No, you were not made to serve the Sabbath. You were made to serve the Father. And the Father made the Sabbath for you. The Sabbath isn't about sacrifice. The Sabbath is a mercy. It is a gift for you to rest and reflect on the holiness of your God. That's why you stop working. That's why you don't work. That's why you don't go out of your way and make your Sabbath super busy because you don't want to distract from this time that you're spending with your father, with the guy who created, the God who created the Sabbath himself. 
is good enough for him. It's got to be good enough for you. And consistently, church, we see this. We see Jesus schooling these guys. He puts them in their place. They challenge him. And because he's the real deal, because he is truly the Messiah, he proves that he is more wise than they are. He proves that he is more holy than they are. And he constantly just overcomes these tests and these rules and these things that they put in front of them, in front of him, and they make fools of, them, of themselves. And from that moment on, as we see these two instances where Jesus lays out, this is what the Sabbath is, you're wrong. We see in verse 14, it tells us their goal, the Pharisees' goal, began to cons- be to conspire against Jesus, to have him arrested, to have him killed, to discredit him. Because here's the deal, church. Jesus was not the Messiah that the Pharisees wanted. Jesus was not the Messiah that they were hoping for. When, when, they, when Jesus was prophesied back in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, the, this Messiah that the Pharisees and the people were hoping for was not Jesus. They wanted a general. They wanted a conqueror to come in, the Savior to show up and, and kick Rome's door down because Rome was over them at that time. Rome was over the Jewish people and enforcing these unfair laws, these unfair rules, this, this authority over them, and they wanted freedom from Rome. And they wanted a savior who would come in and kick Rome's door down and say, I'm a conqueror. I am an earthly king. I'm giving power. I'm making these men, these women, this Jewish nation, a powerful earthly kingdom. That's what the people wanted. That's the kind of savior that they wanted. They wanted a Messiah who would show up and make them kings and rulers and to establish this earthly kingdom and make them great. But that is not the savior that God sent. That isn't the kind of savior that any of them needed. That isn't the kind of savior that you and I, we don't need an earthly ruler right now or ever, really. They didn't need a general or an earthly king, and that isn't what they got. They got Jesus instead. And Jesus didn't show up. He didn't operate the way everyone expected him to. Instead, look at how Matthew tells us God's chosen servant is meant to look as he quotes the book of Isaiah, starting in verse 15. Let's read. Jesus, aware of this, aware that the Pharisees were conspiring against him, trying to destroy him, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is what Isaiah says, speaking on behalf of God. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Church, this was the kind of Savior that God sent. The Savior, church, that is beloved by God, the Savior that the soul of God is well pleased with, this is the Savior that God placed his grace and his spirit upon, Jesus. He wasn't a general or a conqueror who would lead armies through the streets and have people shouting his name as he tore down the enemies of the Jewish people. That's not what he was. But instead, look again at the scripture. Look back at verses 19 through 21 and think about this. This is Jesus He will not quarrel or cry aloud. 
nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Jesus came for the broken. Jesus came for the lost, for those who feel they have nothing left to offer. These phrases we see here about bruised reeds and smoldering wicks are word pictures that paint a picture of the grace and the love of Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. See, these reeds that are being written about here were incredibly common in Israel. They're these tall, hard, very, very firm reeds that people would cut down and they would use them for so many things. These reeds were really cool because you could cut them in different lengths, you could make tools out of them, you could turn, turn them into writing utensils. What they were most often used for was to make instruments. You could make flutes with these reeds. These reeds had so much use as long as they weren't bruised. See, when these reeds were bruised, they became flimsy. You could bend them, that they weren't firm, that they weren't rigid anymore, and you couldn't make things out of them when they were bruised. And so all there was to do when you got a, when you got a big like influx of these reeds that came in, you would sort through them, and if there was a bruised reed that was bendy and unusable, you would break it and you would throw it away. It was only really good to be burned up. And these smoldering wicks, these smoldering wicks that they're talking about here were what they used in these oil lamps. And you would take the wick and you would run it through the lamp and it would, it would rest at the base, and you would burn it from the outside and it would burn down to the base of the lamp. But once that wick had burned all the way down, there wasn't anything left to do with it. You would put it out, you'd throw the wick away, and you would replace it with a new one. These, are, these two things, these bruised reeds, these smoldering wicks, are things that people would have considered useless. These are two things in the lives of these people that had no purpose. They would not offer anything to people. They had no use in society. They were only good to be thrown out. And for many people, maybe even for some of you, you might feel that way as a person. You may not feel like you have anything to offer people. In your sin, you may feel like you're not worthy of love. In your anger or your depression, your anxiety, your worry, your fear, and your doubts, you may feel like you don't have anything to offer society. You may feel like people think of you as a burden. But Jesus doesn't. That is not how Jesus looks at you. Jesus is the kind of Savior who does not break the bruised reed. Jesus is the kind of Savior who does not put out the wick and throw it out. Jesus is the kind of Savior who loves lost, broken, and needy people. That's the kind of Savior that Jesus came to be. So if you were lost, Jesus came for you. If you're a bruised reed, Jesus came for you. If you're a smoldering wick, Jesus came to save you to tell you that you have worth, to tell you that even though you sin, he still loves you. That's the kind of savior that Jesus came to be, not an earthly conqueror to come and kick Rome's door down and establish this earthly kingdom, but a spiritual conqueror. He came to conquer sin, and he came to conquer Satan and to win the spiritual battle for us. That's the kind of savior that Jesus is. And that isn't what most of the Pharisees wanted which is why they began to put so much effort into trying to discredit, arrest, and even have Jesus killed. So what we see is these Pharisees, these guys who knew so much about God, had so much knowledge 
about God. These guys that claim to be so close to the Lord, these guys who should have been the first ones in Jesus' corner, instead going against him. These should have been the guys that were immediately on board, but instead they hated Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. But he was the kind of Messiah that they needed. And that he is the Messiah that God chose to send. So I love this. I love this because up to this point in Matthew, these first 21 verses, Matthew is explaining how Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, how he, he takes this kind of power away from the Pharisees, explaining how even though the Pharisees don't love Jesus for who he is, don't accept that he is this Savior, he points out that this is the Savior. This is God's chosen servant. That's how he spends these 21 verses. And I think he does this to set the stage and explain these things so that we could understand all these facets, all these little background details as to why the Pharisees got to the point where they either absolutely commit it or get very close to committing this unforgivable sin. Let's read on and see. So here we have this man who's demon oppressed, as we're about to read, um, and here in verses 22 through 23. So why don't you join me there in Matthew 12? It says this, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him so that, the, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? So this man's demon-oppressed. He is inhabited by a demon, and he is blind. He can't see. He's mute. He can't speak. He can't look around to find help, and he can't ask for help. He can't do this. He, this is a broken man. Most people probably would have avoided him. Some people probably would have feared him. They probably would have cast him out. This man was a bruised reed. This man was a smoldering wick. And Jesus does what he does best, and he heals him. Jesus proves, as he does time and time again, just the kind of Savior that he came to be. Jesus proves, once again, that he is the Messiah. He cures the blind and the mute. He has the authority to cast demons out, and the people begin to get it. I love this, because they, they ask here in verse 23, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Could this be him? Could this be the Messiah? Is this Jesus, the guy who's going to come and save us? Could this be it? And the Pharisees, they hear this talk. They hear the speculation of the people, and they begin to hear this pondering and this possibility, like, oh, the people are talking about Jesus saying he could be the Savior. And they begin to make an effort to discredit him. And it's here we see the Pharisees begin to tread some very, very dangerous water. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 20, or sorry, verse 24, as they respond. But when the Pharisees heard it, when they heard the people speaking, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Church, this was the moment that the Pharisees began to cross lines that no one should ever cross. This was the moment where the Pharisees, in their desperate attempt to turn people against Jesus... 
because they don't want to relent, because they don't want to admit that Jesus is the Messiah. In their desperate and evil attempt to just maintain power, they accuse Jesus of working through demons. We're going to read in just a moment why that is such a blasphemous and horrible thing to do. But before we do that, we need to talk about why it isn't true. Why it isn't true that Jesus was working through demons. Why that's completely false. Why that's completely ridiculous. And Jesus tells us himself why that is. Let's read on as Jesus responds to the Pharisees in verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Jesus speaking, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus starts off by making an excellent point that people love to give credit to Abraham Lincoln for. I'm just saying. I love Honest Abe, but my guy, he was quoting the greatest emancipator that will ever be, there ever was, and there ever is. That, that's just, that was Jesus first. Abe took that from Jesus. And he says, Jesus says, a house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan is doing these things, church, if Satan is doing these things that Jesus is doing, if Satan is working against himself, then he's not going to have a leg to stand on. His kingdom has no legs. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. Listen, the things that he does, the things that Jesus is going to do are so detrimental to Satan. The things that Jesus did and is going to do later on in scripture is so detrimental to Satan and his regime that he would be destroying himself if, he was, if Jesus was doing this through the power of Satan. Satan would be destroying himself if Jesus was working through him. The work of Jesus was so obviously holy, so obviously rooted in the Holy Spirit. The claim that these Pharisees are making, church, it's the epitome of foolishness. This claim the Pharisees made is total foolishness. And then Jesus turns their argument around on them. Check out what verse 27 says. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus asks them, don't you cast out demons too? Aren't you also people who cast out demons? We have to assume that the Pharisees were also able to cast out demons. That, that was one of their roles, was to help these affl people afflicted. And Jesus says, he says, if exercising demons is an act that is done through the work of demons, then if that is true, then the Pharisees who exercise demons would only be doing so through demons also. It's this point that Jesus made where he says, if I'm guilty of it, you are too. And I love it. I love this. I love this so much. Like, I, can you just imagine how mad this made the Pharisees? Just like, oh, that's a really good point. He got us there. He got us there, guys. That's true. But Jesus isn't done yet. He could have dropped the mic right there, but he didn't. He is about to explain just the kind of Savior that he is. Look at what it says in verse 28 through 30. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me 
scatters. Jesus tells them, listen, if I'm telling the truth, if the Spirit of God has come upon you, if the Spirit of God is working through me to cast these demons out, to heal, to heal the blind and the mute, then guys, the kingdom of God is here. If I'm telling the truth and the Holy Spirit is working through me, then you need to get it straight. You need to get it right because the kingdom of God is upon you. Because the point is this, church. Jesus came to defeat Satan, not work for him. No, Jesus is the strong man kicking down Satan's door and plundering his house and taking his power away where we were once trapped in sin and hopelessness, where we were trapped under the power of the enemy, Jesus came in and bound Satan and bound sin and plundered his house and he rescued us. That's the kind of savior that Jesus is. Jesus did not come as an earthly conqueror to beat Rome or to raise up this earthly kingdom. He came as a spiritual conqueror to usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus was showing and proving in that moment with that man who was possessed by a demon, with that man who was mute, with that man who was blind, that he was a true savior. He was the real deal, that he came to be a conqueror over sin and over Satan. Not the kind of conqueror that the people and the Pharisees wanted, but the kind that they needed. The kind of conqueror that we needed, church, because first of all, this is good news for us. Man, praise God. Praise God that this is the kind of Savior that he sent. Praise God that his definition of a Messiah is one who comes and he picks up the broken pieces of his people, who comes and redeems his people, who comes and finds the lost and brings them home. That's the kind of Savior he sent. That is who God's Messiah is. And that's great news for us. Secondly, church, this is where the Pharisees royally messed up. Because to see Jesus so clearly like they were able to, in front of them, to see the good that Jesus was doing with their own eyes and how clearly evident it was that he was the Messiah, to see Jesus the way the Pharisees were able to, to the point that even common people could see it, even uneducated people were saying, can this be the son of David? Can this be the Messiah? And then for the Pharisees to go on and claim that Jesus was doing the work of the enemy, that is the definition of blasphemy. To purposely speak such lies in the face of knowing such absolute truth is blasphemy. And Jesus warns us gravely against that kind of sin. Let's read on and see what he says in these last two verses we'll be looking at, verses 31 through 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Church, right here, Jesus lays it out. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to speak against it, is an act so heinous to God that it is the one thing that he won't forgive. To blaspheme that spirit, church, that is kind of terrifying. 
Not, no, it's not kind of terrifying. It is just terrifying. Church, that should instill a holy and righteous fear within you. It is a terrifying thought to think that there is a sin that won't be forgiven. And if you're anything like me and you hear this and you're, you're prone to panic, I get it. You might be like combing through your mind a little bit, thinking about all the sins you've committed, being like, oh, I pray I didn't commit this sin. Oh, Lord, please, oh, please, oh, please. Like, I pray I didn't commit this sin. I was doing this while I was studying this. I was like, oh, man, Lord, that's terrifying. I hope I didn't do that. You, you might be saying, like, I only lied yesterday. Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness I didn't blaspheme the Spirit. But the point of this church isn't to lessen all of your sin, the other sins that aren't blaspheming the Spirit. Because let's be honest, without the grace and the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross, none of our sins would be forgiven. Without the gift of Jesus, every single one of our sins would be unforgivable. Praise God for Jesus. But my hope in studying this would be to hopefully help you understand this sin, to help you understand when it is committed and what it takes to commit it. Because I'm sure more than some of you have just a little bit of anxiety wondering, like, have I committed this sin? What if I committed it on accident? What if in the future I commit it on accident and I, and I love Jesus? What if I accidentally commit this sin? And to all of you I say this because I'm one who gets a little worried about this. Calm down. Calm down. This sin, hear me, this sin is not one that you can commit on accident. This is not a sin that you can commit willy-nilly. You can't accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit because in order to go out of your way to commit such blasphemy, you have to know the truth absolutely. For example, wondering if something is from God or the enemy is not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. There are times where I see things, like in person, where I see things on TV, where I see things on Facebook, where people claim that this is from God, this is the Spirit moving. And I wonder, I wonder, I'm like, is it? That doesn't look like the Spirit to me. Are, are they sure that this is the Holy Spirit moving? Church, that's not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's called being unsure and seeking discernment. Discernment is a spiritual gift that God gives. In fact, Scripture tells us in 1 John chapter 4 that we should test the spirits. 1 John chapter 4 verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Church, to wonder and test and see if something is actually from God is not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's okay to get confused. It's okay to wonder. In order to truly understand how we do reach that sin, though, I want you to think back on the situation where Jesus gave this warning. See, church, the people in the Pharisees, I believe, were some of the most blessed groups of people in all of history because they had a front row seat to Jesus. They got to sit right in front of him. They got to see him with their very eyes. They got to hear his voice. They knew what Jesus sounded like. They got to watch him perform miracles. They got to see him heal these people. They got to see him do these things that, man, I would just do anything to see. How strong my faith would be if I could just see what they saw. These people saw Jesus in ways. These Pharisees saw Jesus in ways that there, there's no way that they could deny that he was the Messiah. There could be no doubt that he was the Savior of this world. His work and his power 
was so clearly from God, no one could, de could deny that. The Pharisees could see without a doubt. There's no doubt that they could just see God at work before them. But in the Pharisees' anger and their bitterness and their lies and in their sin, they went out of their way to say that Jesus was doing his work through Satan. And this deliberate, hateful act is what pushed them either directly into or extremely close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because in all truthfulness, church, we don't know if the Pharisees committed the sin or if they got close to it. Jesus didn't expressly say that they did. Many, many scholars are torn on it. I, who am not as admittedly scholarly as I wish I was, I can't tell you confidently if the Pharisees committed this sin or not. We know they were at least getting close enough to it that Jesus gave the warning. And the point of the scripture, church, isn't for us to determine whether or not the Pharisees committed this sin. It is to make sure that we don't. The point of the scripture is to make sure that we never blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that we never commit this sin that God considers so wrong, so heinous that he wouldn't forgive it, church, because if it breaks God's heart, it should break ours. If it breaks the heart of God, it should break your heart too. So the point we need to make sure we don't do is this. Are you ready? If you're a note taker, here comes the definition that you've probably been waiting for. That in light of totally understanding that the Holy Spirit is at work, we don't attribute its work to Satan. Church, this sin requires such forethought that it can't be done on accident. This sin requires such knowledge of the work of God in front of us that you would have to go out of your way to commit it. Attributing the works of the Holy Spirit, the works of the Holy Spirit to the enemy, church, is such a deep-rooted, heinous sin against God that he won't forgive that you really have to be sure that you're committing it before you commit it. I personally believe that, that someone who is saved, someone who truly loves the Lord, someone who has experienced the love of Christ, I don't think it's possible for you to commit this sin. I think if you truly love Jesus, if you truly understand the heart of God, that this sin is so atrocious to you, you don't even go near it. So a lot of you probably don't need to worry, but we need to know that it's possible. Because, church, it is heartbreaking to know that there are people who have committed this sin. It is heartbreaking to know that it is possible to commit this sin. And, church, under this sin, under any sin, really, we find a heart problem. The core issue is truly a matter of the heart. And it's a heart problem we all have. It's a heart problem the Pharisees had. Because, church, you see, the Pharisees' issue, one of many was that they weren't willing to accept Jesus as he was. Jesus didn't fit into their box. He didn't fit into their expectations. He didn't fit into their design. Jesus threatened their way of life. Jesus challenged them to change, and they hated him for it. They hated Jesus for it. They hated Jesus for the kind of Messiah that he came to be. They didn't want him, and they resisted to the point that they were pushing the limits of forgiveness. And church, we cannot be like them. We cannot be like the Pharisees. Because church, Jesus isn't going to fit into your box. Jesus is not going to fit into your expectations of him. Jesus is not going to fit into your details. Jesus is going to challenge you 
Jesus is going to ask you to change. He's going to make you uncomfortable. He's going to ask you to give up old dreams, old pleasures, old desires, and to chase after him as the Savior that he is. Because, church, if we don't accept him as he is, as he's always going to be, we run the risk of being like the Pharisees. We run the risk of letting our selfishness, of letting our desires, of letting these things that we're clinging so tightly onto that we don't want to lose push us into this realm where it might be possible for you to say, like, well, no, Jesus isn't even the real deal. We can't be that way. We cannot let our sin keep us from our Savior. Church, most importantly, we have to accept Jesus because he is the only way to life. He is the only way to salvation. He is the only one who will pick you up as the bruised reed that you are, and he won't break you. He is the only one that won't throw you out as the smoldering wick you are, who will see the value that you have, who will tell you, I know you're broken. I know you're sinful. I'm still going to go up on that cross for you. I'm still going to die for you. I'm still going to love you. Because that's the kind of savior that I am. I don't care that you're broken. I still love you. Church, if the Pharisees had just humbled themselves, they just humbled themselves and given up all of these desires and these dreams that they had and just followed him, they would have found something so much better than what they got. Church, I pray that you would love him and accept him as the savior he is as the Savior that you need. If you don't know him, get to know him. There are pastors here who would love to pray with you, who would love to walk you down that road. If you have never accepted him, make that decision today. Because church, when you love him, if you do that, if you embrace him as the Savior you need and the Savior he is, the mere thought of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it's not even going to cross your mind. So be wary. Know it's possible. Know that this sin exists, but know that the answer is to just know and love Jesus. If you know and love him, you're not going to think about this sin. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your love, and I thank you for your grace. Lord, that there, there is there's so much, God, that you pour out, so much that you give. And I thank you, Lord, that you... You are a God who is worthy of our praise, God, that you are so holy, Lord, that we cannot, we must not attribute any of your holiness to anything but you. So, Lord, we thank you. And I just pray for this church right now, Lord. I pray for hearts, Lord, that are, that are asking questions, Lord, that they would seek answers, that you would use us, Lord, that you would move in your most perfect way. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Jaden. Thank you for that word. Church, as you make your way out, I just want to remind you that next week, if you have signed up to be an actor for Night in Bethlehem, you will be gathering here in the sanctuary after third service. Lunch will be provided. You'll be going through your lines and working and preparing for Night in Bethlehem, which is the second week of December, the 8th, 9th, and 10th. We're really excited about that. We have about three to 4,000 people that come through here from the community to hear about Jesus' birth. So again, if you're an actor, uh, come next week after third service. Also on your way out, if you brought a blanket, the table is set up there for you to leave it for uh, the collection that the Salvation Army is doing. This is the scripture that I would love for you to remember as you make your way out and go about your week. It says there in Matthew that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. God bless you.